politics and above religion, a moral authority exists known globally as the ageless wisdom. It is the study of consciousness, the mystery of awareness, which cannot be measured, yet will not be denied. Stay tuned as we explore consciousness, the fundamental nature of reality. Welcome to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School with Michael Benner. Hello friends, welcome to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School on 90.7 FM, KPFK in Los Angeles. Streaming for the world at kpfk.org, a program, as the intro said very clearly, I think, a program about consciousness. What does that mean? A program about awareness, about understanding, about the fundamental nature of reality. And what a show we have for you today. A few months ago, John Cleese from Monty Python, uh, Faulty Towers, and so many other things, films like Life of Brian and uh, Search for the Holy Grail and uh, Fish Called Wanda, you know who John Cleese is. We were fortunate enough to have him on this radio program here in KPFK. And in our discussion, which had a lot to do with consciousness and awareness and the exalted ethics and values, the virtues, if you will, that appear to go along with expanded awareness or higher consciousness, John began to talk about a book he had read that really influenced him called The Master and His Emissary by a scholar by the name of Ian McGilchrist. So uh, John was just so impressed with this fellow and had met with and done some seminars with Dr. McGilchrist. So I looked him up, and uh, he has a new book, so he was anxious to tell people about it. The new book is called The Matter with Things. And so I persuaded him to be on the program today. He'll be calling us from the Isle of Skye, (laughs) uh, off the coast of Scotland. And I'm really excited to talk to him. Because in addition to being a professor of literature at All Souls College, at Oxford University, very prestigious. He decided, after a decade or two, to become a medical doctor. And so he went back to school, and then he decided to become a psychiatrist. And he started a private practice. And then he went back to school to study brain scanning, neural imaging, because of his fascination with the dissimilarity of the two hemispheres of the brain. They're not at all alike. And they serve completely different functions. And gosh, it's been 50 years since the idea of left brain, right brain came into the common usage. We've heard a great deal about left brain and right brain, but there's been extraordinary research done recently such that you may be surprised at some of what's been learned And so we'll have Dr. Miguel Cristan in just a few minutes. First, I want to remind you that we are in our initial fund drive for the new year, 2022. And in order to stay on the air and remain commercial-free, 
And that's not just to avoid the dunning nature of 16 minutes an hour of uh, distracting, upsetting, and insulting commercials, but also the corporate influence, don't you see, that goes with that. And so KPFK and its sister stations, a group called Pacifica, the Pacifica Foundation, founded in 1947, after World War II, as a band-to-bomb radio station, a peace and social justice, invented this whole idea of listener-sponsored radio. And it's worked pretty well until recently. And with COVID, and I must say, the internet, which puts such great demand on people's time, we have so much media competition now, that uh, you add COVID to the top of that, we're in dire straits. We've reduced our budget by a third. We're flying on a wing and a prayer, as they say. And uh, we need your help. We need your support. And so several times a year, we come to you with uh, a fund drive and request that you point your browser to kpfk.org and go to the donation section I like to suggest Sustainer's Circle. It's easy to find, easy to set up. You'll be offline in three minutes, and you'll be able to donate $15, $20, $25 a month every month to this radio station and set it and forget it. Nothing you need to do. That money will be withdrawn from your account. It'll show up as a line item on your monthly bank statement. And whether you get that online or through the mail, it'll be there. And you'll have a nice tax deduction at the end of the year. But more importantly, you'll be supporting this radio station and its peace and social justice mission. More than 100 weekly radio programs, talk shows like this, news and uh, information and entertainment. There's some great music programs, too, on KPFK. But... Every single show on this radio station could not be found elsewhere. There's just no place else. So we're a diverse group of women and men, but what brings us all together is our progressive belief in democracy, supporting democracy and liberty for everyone, regardless of creed, race, ethnicity, political party, religion, and we're seeing that being challenged now here at home and internationally. We were talking last week about the fact that several NATO countries are not democracies. They're dictatorships. Hungary, I named it, and Turkey. These are fake democracies, if you will, but they're very autocratic and uh, despotic. And so... We think of NATO as this great defender of democracy. It's no such thing. It's a defensive alliance. It's a a treaty that came out of World War II. So our mission is to oppose war, better said, wage peace. And that's necessary for social justice and personal happiness. But we need your help. So... You can either call right now, 818-985-5735. That's 818-985-KPFK. 
and make a pledge, just a pledge, or make a donation or a contribution. Again, use Sustainer Circle. Make it monthly so you don't even notice. Just, you know, 15, 20 bucks a month, that would be great. Or dig deep, $150, $250, $500 to support this radio station. And I'll have a little more to say about this at the end of the program, but I just wanted to mention it up front. Maybe you could do that right now and then settle in and listen to my interview with Dr. McGilchrist. In any event, thanks for joining us. This is the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School on KPFK. This is a program that I've been looking forward to for some time. A couple of months ago, we had uh, John Cleese on this program, and uh, we had a hilarious time talking about all manner of things, but mostly about the nature of consciousness. And he started in on a discussion of the divided brain, the the bicameral mind and the hemispheres, and told me about this remarkable book called The Master and His Emissary. And uh, Cleese was really taken with this, really impressed by this. And so I paid attention and did a little snooping around. And, and I have found the author of that book, and it turns out he has a new, even bigger, more comprehensive book about the bicameral mind, and he's our guest today, calling us from the Isle of Skye off Scotland. What a romantic picture I have in my mind of that. Dr. Ian McGilchrist, and uh, Dr. Ian, for you, good evening. For us, good afternoon from California. That's right. Good afternoon. (laughs) Thanks for joining us. This treatment of the bicameral mind um, reminds me of a book from, gosh, 40 years ago or more by Julian James. Sure. And bicameralism is, is not new, but I'm sure the research in the years that have passed must be significant. What do we now know about uh, the divided brain or bicameral mind? Uh, it's mind and brain we need to talk about, I think, that perhaps Julian James had no idea about. Well, James's book, um, The Origins of Consciousness and the Breakdown of the Bicameral Mind, is a wonderful work. I think it was mid-1970s. Um and it was about the time when talk of left-right hemisphere differences had gone into popular culture. And the first hurdle I have to get over in talking about this topic is to explain that almost everything that people think they know about the differences between the hemispheres is wrong. But that doesn't mean to say there aren't extremely important differences. It's getting at what those differences are that I've spent the last 30 years and uh, somebody who worked in a lab and has never actually worked with a patient might buy the idea that there's no significant difference between the hemispheres. But you try telling that to any neurologist or psychiatrist or anybody who actually has to do with living human beings, they won't believe you because there are enormous differences. And what it boils down to is something that when I found out that this was really the essence of it, it didn't immediately strike me 
how important it is. But it's a difference in the way in which the two hemispheres attend to the world. One of them, the left hemisphere, attends with a very, very narrowly focused, targeted beam of attention to a detail that it needs to grab quickly. But it doesn't help it understand the bigger picture. It helps it manipulate the world. The right hemisphere, meanwhile, sustains the bigger picture, the broad attention, sustained over time as well, and keeps vigilance for everything else that's going on while the bird, the animal, is engaged in this act of grabbing something so that it doesn't become somebody else's lunch while it's getting its own. So that's effectively the, the basic difference, but it ramifies. I mean, it leads to enormously interesting consequences. Do you want me to say a little about that? I do. Yeah, just continue. Well, with attention, the thing is it changes the nature of what you're attending to. If you attend to the human body in the way that a pathologist does in the lab or the way that an artist does uh, in, in the workshop or, or a lover does in the bed, they produce completely different kinds of uh, bodies, really, different experiences altogether of it. And the nature of the attention you pay to the world changes what you find, and it also changes you. So that it's a two-way process. If you pay a certain kind of attention only to the world, you become a certain kind of person who can only see certain things. So attention is very important. It's creative. It creates us and it creates what we see. And if you could characterize very briefly the difference between these worlds, I've done it often enough. I ought to be able to do it again. But it's, it's to condense hundreds of pages into a few remarks. But effectively, the left hemisphere's world is made up of fragments, of atomistic elements that have to be put together in order to make any sense. Those elements are relatively fixed, they're precise, they're certain, they're familiar, and we're interested in how many of them, we're rather detached from them, and our appreciation of them rules out the things that the right hemisphere sees in the world, which is that nothing is ever completely separate from everything else, that nothing is fixed but is always constantly moving and changing, that th this is a world of unique things, not just categories that so we can stick something in and pigeonhole it in the way the left hemisphere does. It sees the unique. It sees the implicit meaning as well. That's very important because art, poetry, music, these are all conveyors of implicit meaning. And if you don't understand anything, unless it's made explicit, you don't understand those things. So those are some of the more important elements. I was thinking about this the other day and uh, just uh, wondering in my mind about the distinctions. And uh, there was a football game, American football, of course, on, yeah. on the television. And this fellow threw this long pass downfield, 35, 40 yards. And I thought, if he had to do that with his left brain, <laughs> it would involve trigonometry and calculus. He'd have to account for the wind resistance, the spin of the ball, uh, the, the weight of the ball. I mean, it would just be a, an impossible task. But he's able, of course, to... Uh, under the pressure from these giant men rushing at him, <laughs> uh, 
with the intention of taking him down to the ground, he's got to run back and heave this ball to a player running away from him high in the sky such that the ball intersects with the runner. Quite a remarkable task, if you think about it. Yes. And there's nothing logical or rational about it. How, how, how do we do that? Is that not a right brain gift? Well, I think you're pointing to the distinction between the conscious mind and the unconscious mind. And as Julian James himself said, there's nothing inferior about the unconscious. In fact, it's in our unconscious that we solve problems, make decisions, um, square up our alternatives, um, fall in love, whatever. All the things that matter in our life go on outside the glare of this tiny spotlight of attention. And actually in my new book, The Matter With Things, um, I look at both motorcycle racing and horse racing because people who worked in those areas contacted me after reading The Master and His Emissary and saying, this is so relevant to everything I do. So in a way that maps onto left and right in that um, the left is more captured by this highly conscious, stilted, willed, act of attention to a detail, whereas the ability to take in from all one's senses and reach an intuitive conclusion is better done by the right hemisphere. And one of the things I do in my new book is to try and reverse a little bit the, um, the bad rap that intuition has had in recent times, partly because of the extraordinary success of Dan Kahneman's very entertaining work on, on this very topic. Um, and he and I, I don't think, see, see that differently. But there is a tendency for us to think that just because very cleverly set up situations can show that we can be deceived by our intuition doesn't mean to say that we're mainly deceived by our intuitions. I mean, I can show you the most staggering optical illusion that you just can't believe that that is, you know, what you're seeing is what you are seeing. But I don't know anyone who, after seeing that and realizing that their eyes, their eyes were deceiving them, that says, oh, I'm going to live my life with my eyes closed from now on. I'm not going to bother looking at anything. I mean, that would be really stupid. And we know that actually in intuition we can balance a whole lot of different factors, as many as 20 different elements, and we can come to a conclusion, which if we tried to spell it out in sentences serially, one after another, we'd miss a lot of it, and we'd come to forced conclusions that weren't necessarily the best conclusions. In fact, there's a very funny thing. A horse racing expert wrote to me and said he'd, he'd been making these, um, he'd been making judgments of the odds on certain horses winning races for bookmakers. And time and again, he would send them a text with, a, with an immediate impression after seeing the horses just for about 30 seconds. And he was almost invariably right. But he kept questioning himself and saying, that can't be right. And then he'd go back and change it. And, and then he would be wrong. And the bookmakers eventually said, look, for God's sake, just send us a text. Don't think about it. And on that basis, he makes a huge living. But when he tries to think about it, he doesn't do any better than chance. Intuition seems to be more emotional than mental, to me anyway. And so much of what I believe I've come to understand in my life has come to me intuitively. 
and I've had to learn to trust my intuition. But it's much more reliable when I seek to understand myself than when I use my intuition to understand the world. The world around me seems like I, I'm better off relying on my rational objective. I think of it as the objective side, the left brain, the rational side, and the subjectivity of my emotions and revealing my responses and myself and my individuality. That seems to me, anyway, to be the uh, the great value of developing intuition. Yes, I'd, I'd just like to qualify what you said, if I'm going to be able to agree with you. <laughs> because, um, first of all, I don't think that rationality is the preserve of the left hemisphere. Um, both hemispheres are capable of reason. In fact, the right hemisphere can reason more subtly and can, in fact, do certain kinds of mathematics problems that the left hemisphere finds more difficult. So it's not a clear-cut thing like that. But what I loved was when you first said, you know, there's something more emotional about it. But we shouldn't think that on the one hand there is this compartment labeled reason and on the other there is this rather dangerous compartment labeled emotion. Our feelings, our bodies, our minds and our thinking selves are all part of one phenomenon. They're only artificially divided up like that. And the left hemisphere is, in a way, the consequence of having removed an awful lot of the elements from the picture. But in reality, when we make decisions, we're doing them with our whole self, mind and body, feelings, thoughts, intuitions, and reason. And I argue in the book, my new book, in the middle section, I ask the question, how do we get to, you know, know what we can trust more than its opposite? I don't believe in one big truth, but I certainly believe there are things that are truer than other things. And we all do. Otherwise, we couldn't even get out of bed in the morning or have a conversation about anything. So how do we find those things out? And I argue essentially, in brief, that we need science and we need reason and we need intuition and we need imagination. And in each case, each of those cases, I demonstrate that the more valuable part is in fact contributed by the right hemisphere, including to science and including to reason. And that when science and reason are deprived of what the right hemisphere contributes, they are poorer versions of themselves. There's so much here, it's hard for me to take the whole and turn it into a linear conversation. But I want to dwell on the dangers of binary thinking, which I just stepped into with you. Yes. Um, so let's, let's underscore the importance of not being too binary in saying everything is either or. Oh, uh, this has been a frustration of mine as a journalist and a talk show host all of my life, this uh, tendency to bifurcate all differences into opposites. And it seems to me to be a function of stress in the amygdala. Do you think that that's where a lot of this is coming from, just a survival uh, impulse? Well, I think snap decisions have to be made at a, a fairly gut level, if you like, which is represented in the brain by the level of the amygdala, I, I guess. But I think you've put your finger on a very important distinction 
The left hemisphere tends to see things in black and white. It's either this or it must be that. This is because it needs to be certain. It prizes certainty. It feels anxious if it's not certain of something. But actually, we can never be certain of anything in our entire lives. We can only have reasonably good ideas. And it's very, very um, troubled, the left hemisphere, by a situation which is ambiguous or ambivalent. But again, most things in life are not clean cut at all. So... I sometimes characterize the difference between the hemispheres as the left hemisphere being the either-or hemisphere and the right hemisphere being the both-and hemisphere. But that doesn't make either-or thinking wrong. I say that what we need is not either either-or thinking or both-and thinking. We need both either-or thinking and both-and thinking. I hope that's clear. <laughs> 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 it's a bit of a conundrum, but I get it. Yeah. Um, substituting and for or is generally a pretty good idea. I think. It is. It is. And, of course, it's more the, the picture that I'm giving you at the moment is the sort of thing I can say very, very briefly. Um, all these statements have to be qualified. They're not absolute. But, I mean, if you need to get a picture, you need to get that picture from some headlines, and that's what I'm really giving here. And funnily enough, it's actually an electrophysiological truth that the left hemisphere doesn't seem the, see the need of the right hemisphere, but the right hemisphere sees the need for the left hemisphere. So the right hemisphere accepts that there is need for either or thinking, and it's sort of a kind of outsources that to the left hemisphere so that it can keep the big picture. But the left hemisphere doesn't have that big picture, so it thinks, it knows everything. It's a very good example of, uh, you know, the, 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 the so-called Dunning-Kruger effect, that people who are not very bright think they know everything. But as people become brighter and know more, they think they know less and less. And I'm afraid that that applies to these two hemispheres. Yeah, that's uh, Socratic wisdom, of course, the, the the value of recognizing how little we know and how much there is to be known is the work of a, yes. a wise person. Yeah. There's a, a, a quotation that I believe is mistakenly attributed to Einstein about, and I haven't been able to figure out who really gets credit for it, but it goes along the lines of... Uh, the intuitive mind is a, a sacred gift, and uh, the rational mind, it's a servant. I think this is where I got the idea of the left brain being the rational side. And we've honored the servant and ignored the, the sacred gift. Yeah. And that's sort of the master and his emissary, isn't it? It is very much so, yes. Um, that quote... Uh, it's quite true, has never been tracked down to, to anyone. It's extraordinarily in keeping, however, with many of the other things that Einstein is, is certainly known to have said. It is not out of character. He was himself very clear that his um, ability to solve problems was intuitive and that sometimes finding out why he was right would take weeks or months afterwards. He'd, he'd laboriously work out a rationale for how he'd come to that conclusion. But his daughter describes him sometimes playing music and then suddenly getting up from the piano and going, I've got it, and going and, you know, scribbling something. So he was and has written 
everywhere about the importance of intuition. It's just that that particular saying, which is rather beautiful, I, I don't know that we have a recording of him saying it anywhere. But what I can say that is very interesting, I think, is that in all the cultures I've looked at across the world, from the Chinese to the Native Americans, to the, 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 the Inuit to, to Indian culture, there are fables of two powers, unequal powers, one that is wise and all-seeing, one that is limited, proud, rebellious, and that it is very important that that rebel, that Lucifer, if you like, knows its position because it's a very helpful servant, but it's a very poor master because it doesn't really understand what it's doing. And I, I, I don't know whether people still know the story of the, the Sorcerer's Apprentice, but it's really that story from the great poem of Goethe's. Yes, yes. I often say in uh, speaking and in, in teaching about uh, self-awareness that the uh, ego nature's job is to ride shotgun, but it really wants to drive. It's like the 15-year-old teenager that would much rather get behind the wheel. That's a nice way of putting it. <laughs> My guest is Dr. Ian McGilchrist. We're going to take a short break, but I want you to know about his books. He has many, but is probably best known for The Master and His Emissary, about the divided brain. But he has a new book that's quite astounding, and that's called The Matter with Things, Beautiful play on words. Maybe we can get you to speak about the atandre that's unfolded within the matter with things. You're listening to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School on KPFK, and we'll be back with more right after this. KPFK on your radio at 90.7 FM. Perhaps you're listening on the internet at kpfk.org. Uh, we do podcast this program. If you ever miss one and want to catch up, you'll also find it on YouTube. My guest, Dr. Ian McGilchrist, is the author of a marvelous new work. It uh, sold out almost immediately, although it is a pricey and thick volume. How many pages is this it's a two book set isn't it the, the matter with things yes it's two two volumes and it's about 1500 pages um which sounds very off-putting <laughs> but i've taken care that it should be a beautiful book to read because if you're asking somebody to spend a lot of time with a book it needs to be and the pages are not crowded and all the references are in the margin. So you don't have to keep one finger in the back of the book and keep looking something up. It's all there. So, um, yeah, it's, I'm, I'm glad to be able to have left behind me a really beautiful book as well as I think one that sums up what I have to say about life. <laughs> well, it's a tribute to you that you were able to find someone to publish such a book. Uh, publishers are having an increasingly difficult time staying afloat and they're I know. cutting corners and using cheaper materials. And, I know. Um, yes. Uh, American books now look often like they come from third world countries. Yeah. But uh, this is from everything I've seen, I've yet to get my hands on it, but it certainly seems like a beautifully 
bound and illustrated Mm. book. Again, the title is The Matter with Things. Now, that seems to be a pun two or three different <laughs> two or three different ways. That's right. Can you tell me about the title? How did that title occur to you? <laughs> Actually, I have to give credit to a friend. We were having a conversation about what we could call it. Originally, I was going to call it There Are No Things. But a number of people said they didn't really like that. It's a kind of a resting title, but it might line me up with people I totally disagree with, a kind of rabid postmodernist that says, you know, nothing exists. We all make it up. And I don't believe that. I believe we encounter reality. We partly create what we find, but we don't just create it out of nothing. So uh, I was trying to think about, you know, how otherwise to put it. And this friend said, what about the matter with things? And it's lovely because, of course, I am trying to talk about what's gone wrong But I'm also saying that it has to do with our obsession with the material world and with things. And people say, well, if there aren't things, what are there? My answer to that in brief is processes. That if we stop thinking about lumps of stuff that have to be welded together to make any sense, but instead see it as more like a living flow in which there are there are whirlpools, there are pieces, there are parts, but they're all connected and it's all moving. So I believe um, that what we are existing in should be seen as process, not as thing. I think the way you speak and the information that you're sharing with us today uh, speaks volumes about your education, but I think people should know that uh, you were a literary professor uh, at All Souls College at Oxford and then decided to become a medical doctor and then a psychiatrist and then uh, you studied neuroimaging, brain scanning. I mean, this, I don't how many PhDs do you have? <laughs> None. <laughs> I have what you know people call a checkered career. Um The trouble is that I've always been interested in too many different things. I've always, you know, as a child, I, I, my, my grandparents and and my father were very scientifically minded. And so I was brought up in that tradition. And then, you know, in my teens, I just became so much more interested in the humanities, in, in, in history and languages, in, in literature and so on and in philosophy. And so I, I, I went backwards and forwards between these various things at different points in my career. And as you say, I've moved back and forth. So uh, what it has offered me is no no favors in terms of getting on in any one career, but perhaps the favor of letting me see the broader picture, being able to see connections between areas that are too often thought of as completely distinct. Well, that's a perfect setup for my next question, which is, How do you get your arms around all of this? How do you pull back, zoom out, and comprehend all that you know in a holistic fashion? Do you have a a secret to approaching the wholeness of things? (laughs) Um, I don't know. (laughs) If I do, it's a secret from me too. Um, I I think and and read a lot. and over a lifetime, I've become more and more interested in certain 
conceptions that I had as a teenager. I mean, really, the start for me goes right back to my teens. And I've just learned more and now have philosophical arguments to support the positions that I already intuitively held as a teenager. So, for example, I remember being quite certain that a whole was not the same as the sum of its parts. And clever um, uh, fellow students would say to me, well, what's this mysterious something else then that's got added in? You know, and I don't, well, I don't know, but I still don't think the whole is the same as the sum of the parts. Well, I now can argue that, um, you know, in a sophisticated way. And it's a very important insight. I remember also thinking that things don't move in straight lines, that there are not straight trajectories, but in fact that most things progress in a spiral-like fashion. They come back almost to where they were, but now at a little higher on the on the circle, if you like, so moving up a spiral. These things were intuitively clear to me um, as a young person, that the world is not, in fact, inert, dead and unresponsive, but that we respond to it, but it also responds to us, that there is a two-way reverberative relationship between our consciousness and whatever it is that we find in that consciousness, in the field of it. And uh, as I've gone on through these various areas, looking at, you know, the lives of people, the works of art they make, and then seeing them suffering in medicine with problems in their bodies that change their way they thought and changes in their thinking that cause problems in their, their bodies, that I could see that these, these ideas, you know, got more and more fleshed out until, you know, eventually I felt I had to write this one big book before I die. I mean, I, you know, I don't know when I'll die, but it's got to be not that long away from now. And I just want to get what I have to say down there because I believe a lot of people respond to it. My experience is that they do. And that's absolutely lovely. For example, I mean, one of the things that um, when, when I when I left teaching and left medicine, I thought, you know, to write this book, I thought, how are you going to, you know, so much of your life is spent in helping people and in getting the reassurance that they are helped. But it's amazing. I mean, the response to the master and his emissary has been so many emails from people, the strap line of which is something like, your book changed my life. And people report, you know, their, their marriage has improved, their work has improved or whatever. I never set out to write a self-help book, but somehow it seems that that's what I, despite myself, what I did. Well, I think you're supplying missing bits that people find on their own in different ways. But mm. there's also this, it's like the cortex, there's this, this unifying overview mm. that, that people into it if they don't recognize in front of them. You mentioned the whole being greater than the sum of its parts. That brings to mind Buckminster Fuller, mm -hmm. um, who I had the pleasure of seeing in person on several occasions before he passed. Uh -huh. He is a remarkable man. He lives in a whole other universe. That you get. I always got the sense that he he was speaking from a pretty elevated perspective. And what is that missing element that, that supplies more to the sum of the parts? He said it was synergy. Synergy, yes. Yeah, I wonder how you would describe that missing element. Yes, I, I think the word synergy is good because it suggests forcing forces that move together. 
And that is ultimately what I believe exists. So in the, in, when we come to matter and consciousness, I see matter as a manifestation of consciousness in a certain respect. It, it's, it's an aspect of consciousness. It's something that we know within our consciousness. We encounter it in our consciousness. And we know that we only know matter because of our consciousness. We don't know that we only know consciousness because of matter. It might be true or it might not. But the certainty is that matter is something we encounter with our consciousness. And I believe that matter, like consciousness, is an energy. And that these, that ultimately we are dealing with, with force fields. Um, I don't want to go into the physics, but I do a bit in the book. But I think that what we are dealing with is not this 19th century vision of mechanisms and hydraulic um, uh, levers and forces, but, but instead in fields of force that bring about um, uh, consequences which are what we call the things that we observe. Yeah, Max Planck talks about it's impossible to get behind awareness. And uh, there's a quotation that I read by an old mystic, uh, Toller, Johannes Toller, I think was his name, that if I were a king and did not know it, I would not be a king. Right, yes. Uh, I don't think most people are aware of being aware, are they? That's right, that's right. Well, in, the, in all talk about consciousness, one needs to distinguish between awareness and awareness of one's awareness, <laughs> which, which is, and people, sometimes people discuss things um, amiss because one person is using consciousness in one sense and the other is using it in the other sense. So, Yes, um, I I don't know really um, what to say about that. <laughs> well, the the idea that consciousness is fundamental is is mind blowing, and we've had both mystics and quantum scientists on this program talking about the same thing. Yes, that um, rather than consciousness being a, we talked about this with John Cleese too, rather than consciousness being some epiphenomena of brain chemistry, yeah, we just can't explain how matter can produce energy, but we can postulate that energy, consciousness, yes, produces our perception of the material world. Uh, absolutely, and I, I find that really the 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 front running thinkers in physics and in the neurosciences seem to have come to the conclusion that consciousness is not something that can be reduced to anything else but is an essential I, I say building block, but that's not really the right word, but that's the kind of way we think an essential grounding element of the universe of the cosmos. Um, and I actually believe that values are as well. And that's not such an unusual position, even in the uh, Anglo-American analytic tradition. Uh, at All Souls, I was uh, a friend of a great uh, philosopher called Derek Parfit, who was very um, hard-nosed in his philosophy. But he, too, believed that values are ontological Primitives. In other words, you can't get behind them. You can't create them out of anything else. They're part of what is. So um, in the third part of my book, I do address the question, you know, what can we say 
is there. You know, and I look at time and space and and also at matter and consciousness, of course, and at values and indeed at purpose um, and the sense of the sacred. So I, I, I'm looking across a range of things that we find that are difficult to, to reduce to anything else. And one of the things I, I'm at pains to emphasize, and I start part three of the book with this wonderful story from the Onondaga people, Iroquois people, about two brothers. And, and honestly, I've never seen such a, an extraordinary intuitive understanding of the relationship between the two hemispheres as this, um, this myth, which was written down in 1905, I think, first. So long before any of the neuroscience was available, but it's a brilliant expression of it. And I go from there into this idea that the coincidence of opposites is very, very important And when we're looking at reality. In our modern world, we tend to think in this very polarized way that if you move to, in one direction far enough, you get further and further away from what you're trying to evade. But in fact, you get closer and closer to what it is you're trying to evade after a certain point. Because once again, the structure is not linear and things and their opposites coexist and need one another and live together. I sometimes say every angel has his devil and every devil has his angel. That's one of the things I like about the symbol of Taoism is you see the polarity in the yin and the yang, but there's also a dot of the opposite in each. And then there's a sine wave going through the center, and then there's a circle that proscribes the whole thing. Yeah. It seems really rich and beautiful. It is, it is rich and beautiful. And you know what is interesting? I found that this, this, this symbol of the Tai Jitu, the yin yang symbol, um, it didn't exist only in China. It may have originated there, but we have 2,000 year old um, instances of it, one on a Roman soldier's shield and another on a Saxon plate. So this image has been taken into many cultures, not, not just the Chinese culture. Before we uh, run out of time, Ian, I want to uh, talk again about the two hemispheres of the brain. Most of us have never been able, of course, to hold a brain in our hands or examine it closely. When we talk about the divided mind and then these physical lobes, these two sides of the brain, is it true that the appearance of these two hemispheres is different in terms of the yes they have sort of a walnut like appearance of all these folds and yes that they actually look i mean the first thing probably to say is how astonishing that this organ that exists only to make connections has a whopping great divide right down the middle of it what's that about and why are the two hemispheres asymmetrical they're not the same shapes and the band of fibers at the base of the brain called the corpus callosum, a lot of what it does is inhibit. Uh, so it's, there's something very interesting going on in, in that respect. And the two hemispheres are different sizes. They're different weights. They're different shapes. The what we call the sulcal gyral pattern, that's to say the convolutions on the surface of the brain, are different between the two hemispheres. 
um, the cytoarchitecture, that's to say the structure of the, of the neurons in parts of the brain, are not symmetrical between the right and left. The amount of gray matter to white matter is different in the two hemispheres. The neurotransmitters, the, the preponderance of neurotransmitters used by one hemisphere is not the same as the other. So really there is nothing about them that is the same. As a brain scientist, have you ever contemplated the appearance of a walnut and wondered at the similarity? Yes, absolutely. I mean, if you want to compare um, to somebody who's never seen a brain, what, what do you compare it with? Very like a walnut, actually, yes. <laughs> um, and it even has a structure. Not sure what to make of that. Has something like a membrane that separates the two two parts, which in in the in the human in brain or in the animal brain is called the falx cerebri. And there's such a thing in a walnut as well. So it is a very interesting comparison. Well, it's been a joy to have you. And uh, again, this is such an expansive topic, and your background too, just so inclusive. Again, we're talking about really two books, uh, The Master and His Emissary, a good place to begin, perhaps, and then this marvelous new two-volume set, just beautifully bound and published and could be the centerpiece of any reader's library, any serious reader, and that's of uh, uh, Dr. McGill Crest's most recent work, The Matter with Things. And that's really where we need to conclude that your point is that much of the destruction socially and environmentally is a result of us just being too left brained. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So, in conclusion, do you have a remark about that? Yes, I, I I believe that pretty much all the ills that we see around us, the destruction of the natural world, the disintegration of societies, the the lack of civility, the constantly extreme positions espoused in the sphere of social media, um, all these things, uh, the, the the spread of bureaucracy, the dangers of um, certain aspects of technology, all of these things can be seen, if you like, as the natural consequences of the left hemisphere having too much control over where we go, where our lives go. And it distorts who we are, what the world is, and how we relate to it. And it's in the matter with things that I try to set out a different vision uh, of who we are and how we relate to the world. Now, thank you very much, Michael, for having me along today. It's been great. Oh, my goodness. I'm so appreciative of you taking this time to do this. And I uh, only wish we could sit side by side in studio and perhaps in the future, yeah. if COVID settles down, you'll find yourself in Los Angeles. Dr. Ian McGilchrist, the, the new book, The Matter With Things, deserves your attention. Take a look at it. And stick around. We'll have more after this. You're listening to KPFK. Well, we have a few more minutes left in the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School today. 
How about that interview? <laughs> Man, uh, keeping up with him is a challenge, but what? I mean, that's that's an interview you're going to have to listen to a second time. That's just remarkable. Again, his new book is actually two volumes. It's 1,500 pages, and I can see building a library around this. It's I, I think Amazon's asking... $160 for the hardbound edition of The Matter With Things by Dr. Ian McGilchrist. But uh, what, I mean, the content is stunning. But where do you see this book? Yeah, the, the binding on it is like so old school, so uh, 20th century. And the illustrations and the colored plates, and as he was saying, the way it's laid out, uh, if you love books, right, and I mean holding them in your hands and you're proud of your book collection, I'd recommend you you, you give this a thought. And uh, if you want to get your feet wet first, then read The Master and His Emissary. That's his next best-known book about left brain, right brain, the either-or brain and the multi-choice brain. <laughs> the linear brain, and the multidimensional brain. And uh, again, the multidimensional brain, the right brain, knows that it needs the left brain, but the left brain does not want to share its power. And therein lies our problems, the matter with things. We're real good on details and, and uh, deductive, general to specific thinking, but when it comes to the big picture, uh, we're slowly losing our ability to do that, to think conceptually. In any event, my point is, you're not going to hear an interview like that on uh, any other radio station that I've ever heard of. I don't know where on the internet you would go to hear a program like this. And I think it deserves your support, because we're here week after week after week. KPFK programmers are volunteers. I contribute money every month, I contribute this program, which is eight or ten hours a week, and I do it out of joy and love for what I do because of the cool people I get to talk to and mostly because I know it really makes a difference. This is educational. It's lid-lifting and illuminating, and you feel good after you listen to a program like this. So won't you support us? Won't you join the KPFK family? We're inviting you to be a member of the family. And with a contribution of as little as $25 a year, you're also a voting member. You can participate in elections. You could even run for the local station board. You can volunteer. And if you're short on money, how about some time? We can always use volunteers. We can always use help at the KPFK studios. And often you're able to work from home as well. Whatever you can do, volunteer, step up to the plate. Cash is what we really need. And a contribution, or at least a pledge today, at 818-985-5735. Pick up the phone right now and call before the top of the hour. 818-985-KPFK. We're outsourcing our phone room, so these people are answering calls on a variety of things. Tell them I'm calling to support KPFK, and I want to make a donation or a contribution. Use your credit, debit card, your ATM card, or just go to the web 
That's the easiest way, and you maximize your contribution that way as well. Point your browser to kpfk.org slash donate, and then look for Sustainer Circle. This is where you can make a contribution of $15, $20, $25 a month that is uh, removed from your bank account as a donation every 30 days. And you'll see it in your online statement, or maybe you get a paper statement in the mail. It'll be there every month, a line item, and at the end of the year, you get a tax-deductible contribution because KPFK is, and always has been, a charity, a 501c3 charity recognized by the IRS. So support what supports you, will you? I mean, we're talking about pennies a day, really. A dollar a day would be $30 a month, right? Uh, Too much? How about 50 cents a day? We're on 24-7. 50 cents a day would be $15 a month, and I doubt you'd even notice that. And yet, it would add up to a nice contribution of, what, $180 a year. It's a way you can make a difference, a real difference, by supporting every charity you've ever heard of, whatever you're interested in supporting, you know, save the whales, save the redwoods, save the ocean, uh, save yourself from (laughs) nuclear war. You do all of that when you support KPFK because those are the women and men that we bring into studio or online and interview on the radio and disseminate their information. It's community radio, and we're nothing without you. Help us out. Point your browser to kpfk.org slash donate. Do that right now and make your pledge or contribution to KPFK. You'll feel better for it. You'll be proud of yourself every time you listen to this station. Every time you hear an appeal for support, you'll have that button-busting pride of knowing I'm already part of that family. I'm doing my bit. Just a few dollars a month, 15, 20 bucks a month. But, man, what a wonderful feeling. Your conscience will be clear and clean, and you'll have an understanding that you're really making a difference in the world. 818-985-5735 or kpfk.org. I appreciate you tuning in today. Hope you make it a habit every Tuesday at 1 o'clock. I'd like to thank my producer, Mark Brisky. Invite you to stay tuned for Carrie Harrison. You can hear this program streaming on demand at the homepage, theagelesswisdom.com. And the T-H-E is part of it, theagelesswisdom.com. Podcast to all platforms, and if you search the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School, you'll find it on YouTube as well. As always, be gentle, love life, and take care of each other. From Los Angeles, this is Michael Miller on KPFK.